You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Tracy Diamond. I am the Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a few things happening at the library and also give you some Zoom logistics. So as a reminder, we are broadcasting from a Zoom webinar. So if you're in Zoom, um, please use the chat for your comments and questions. And then we're broadcasting to Facebook Live. So if you are watching via Facebook, also use the comment section there. I will be monitoring both for Julie and Mike. Um, and at the end, I will also post a library survey. We'd really appreciate it if you filled it out. It helps us serve you and continue to bring exciting and educational programs. Um, so a couple things happening at the library. So we, as of last Monday, March 8th, we are open at 25% capacity at 21 of our Pratt Library locations. So we hope you come join us to browse, check out books, and use our computers. Um, safety of staff and customers is our top priority. So we hope to see you there as we're open now in limited capacity. And for people who are still um, either working from home or need more consistent Wi-Fi access from home, we have mobile hotspots available for checkout. So you can call up your local Pratt Library location and check one of those out. Um, and so now for our program today, um, I'm thrilled that we are presenting Mediums, Magicians, and the Ouija Board, A Spiritualist History of Baltimore, put together by Julie Saylor of the Maryland Department. And we are featuring special guests during the Q&A, Mike Rose. Um, sorry, my assistant is here. Um, Mike Rose is a professional magician who logs in over 200 shows a year. A perennial favorite at the Maryland Renaissance Festival, Mike is both a performer and the owner of the magic shop there. About 20 years ago, Mike developed an interest in magic history while reading about a magician from the 1940s named Joe Carson. Mike's curiosity about Carson led to his first book, Joe Carson, Beyond the Zombie. Mike received the Library Special Award from the Society of American Magicians for his work on Carson. Mike's current book with co-author Mark Walker, Maryland's Ambassador of Magic, Phil Thomas and the Yogi Magic Mart is the biography of a Baltimore magic icon from the middle of the 20th century. So please welcome Julie Saylor and Mike Rose. Hi, how are you? Um, thanks for coming to my program. I'm Julie Saylor from the Maryland Department. Um, and you are here at Mediums, Magicians, and the Ouija Board, a spiritualist history of Baltimore. So I guess, oh no, the dog is starting to bark. Let me go ahead and share the screen and let's hope the dog quiets down. I am sorry. All of our pets are so active right now, Julie. Yeah, they are. And I am not seeing my slideshow. Oh golly. Um, okay, let me bring up the PowerPoint. 
And let's hope that I can't figure out how to do this anymore. I had it to work before. Golly. Yeah, no worries, Julie. Do you have the PowerPoint open behind Zoom? No, it's not behind Zoom. Let me see what I can do here. Yeah, pull it up. Now it seems to be frozen. That is bad. Let me quit PowerPoint for a second. Okay, so let me minimize Zoom. I did not expect this problem to happen. I am sorry, everybody. You're all good, Julie. Yeah, but now I can't seem to get, because of where the Zoom screen is located. Okay, I can move it. Okay. All right. Let's see what we can do now. All right. I think maybe we could be in business now. Let's try this now. Okay. And we're going to say cancel to that. And I think we're there. Are we there now? Yes, we are in business. All right. So thank you. <laughs> okay. So again, thanks for coming to my program. Um, and before I begin, um, I'd like to say something. I know I have some magicians and also some spiritualists in the audience. So first of all, I'm not a magician and I'm also not a spiritualist. Um, and I do want to recognize that spiritualism is a religion for some. And I don't want to disrespect anyone's beliefs. And as a non-magician, I may also be missing something important in this discussion. So I do hope you'll stick around until the end. Um, Mike Rose and I would love to answer your questions. And also, um, I'll, I'll give you my email address in case you'd like an opportunity to um, ask questions that way. Um, and this program will take a little bit more than an hour, maybe an hour, five minutes or so. So let me start by giving the story behind this program. I'm in charge of indexing the Maryland Department's photograph collection. And every so often, I come across a photograph that intrigues me. So here are a few photographs that I found. So um, these are photographs from the early part of the 20th century of the Demons Club of Baltimore. This one's from 1915. And then here's another one that's not dated, but I think it may be from the same period. Um, at least one of the people in this photograph, Thomas C. Worthington III, was known to me as a person who contributed a lot of photographs to our collection. But who were the demons? I wanted to know. So briefly, the Demons Club was a club of amateur magicians formed in Baltimore in December 1911. And I discovered that Baltimore has a rich magical history that only magicians seem to know about. I began investigating some of these magicians and discovered that many magicians of this era made it their business to expose charlatans who claimed to perform actual magic rather than stage illusions. One Maryland magician, Henry Ridgely Evans, made it his mission to expose fakes, writing books such as The Spirit World Unmasked. So this idea of exposing charlatans was a frequent theme that I've encountered in researching the history of magic. And I had a lot of questions. Who were these people and why did magicians want to debunk them? This is where my research fell down a rabbit hole and it brought me to some fascinating places. And it may even indirectly explain why Baltimore was such a fertile ground for magician societies and even the invention of the Ouija board. So the three major topics I'll discuss are obvious, but they won't be discussed quite in order. I'll be discussing spirit mediums, the Ouija board, and then 
the history of stage magic. And I'll be discussing these from around the 1840s to about the time of the depression. I'll be covering things in more or less a chronological way, but this program is actually thematic. And I'll be looking at all of these topics through the lens that eventually made the most sense to me. I'll do my best to explain what I mean by that. But remember, a lens is an optical instrument. A lens can make things clearer, but at times you may see something, but it may not actually be what you think you are seeing. So the charlatans, the magicians, wished to attack were the spiritualists. Spiritualism was a spiritual or religious movement that had its roots in the mid 19th century. As I began my research, it became clear that this was the lens I needed to use to make sense of the topics I cover in this program. And that's why I call it a spiritualist history of Baltimore. So let me start by giving you some background information about spiritualism. The modern spiritualist movement began on March 31st, 1848 at a house in Hydesville, New York. 12-year-old Kate and 14-year-old Margaret Fox heard rapping or knockings that they believed to be a ghost. The family abandoned the house and they sent the sisters to Rochester to live with their older sister, Leah, but the rappings continued. The sisters believed the rappings were messages from the dead. The first people to show interest in the Fox sisters were two Quakers, Amy and Isaac Post. They believed the wrappings were proof of the immortality of the soul. With their support, the Fox sisters went on the road. In 1849, they, went to an they appeared to an audience of 400 in Rochester. In 1850, they appeared at Barnum's Hotel in New York City three times a week. Literati such as James Fenimore Cooper, Horace Greeley, and William Cullen Bryant attended. While Maggie and Kate toured the country, Leah stayed in New York and held spirit circles. In the media of the time, these were called the Rochester Wrappings. Soon other people tried forming spirit circles, also known as seances, and discovered they also could communicate directly with the dead themselves. These people became known as spirit mediums. Some would speak while in trance, others would do automatic writings or drawings. The remarkable thing is that these early spirit mediums were almost all women, most of them extremely young women. This was during a time when women almost never spoke in public, not even the early feminists. In the 1850s, approximately 200 women traveled the country as trans speakers. So why did this phenomenon take off so quickly? Victorians began questioning the authority of religion on the ultimate destination of a soul. Um, whether a person who died would go to heaven or hell. The bereaved might want to communicate with their loved one and find reassurance that their soul has found peace in another realm. Spirit mediums filled that very real desire. From its beginnings, spiritualism became associated with radical thinking of the Victorian era. Many of the trance speakers came from upstate New York, also a place of early feminist and abolitionist activity. These mediums were not trained by or ordained by anyone in any religion, Instead, they communicated with the dead in a direct, unmediated way. These young women were challenging the predominant patriarchal and hierarchical nature of religion. Though not every spiritualist espoused these beliefs, the early spiritualist movement became allied with the feminist movement, the abolitionist movement, vegetarianism, and the free love movement. The people packing the auditoriums to see these mediums might not have agreed with all this thinking, but the fact these mediums were associated with these radical philosophies was not a secret to the people of Baltimore, and we'll see that later on. 
Spiritualism also appealed to Victorians with a scientific bent. This was a movement that did not depend on belief in a foundational text or in faith. Instead, people focused on what could be directly observed on manifestations of spirits mediated into the realm of the living. If that sounds like believing in something invisible, realize that advances in Victorian science already prepared people to believe in things they could not see. Even the non-religious could believe in electricity and the telegraph, the telephone, and radio. So from the 1850s, Baltimore became a stop for well-known trance speakers. As far as I can tell from my research, Baltimore did not produce a medium that toured. The most successful of these early mediums tended to be young women. Their performances were considered to be more authentic because of their perceived youth and purity. Their physical beauty was undoubtedly also a draw as they were speaking in front of mixed male and female audiences. So now I'm gonna show you a few of these women who visited Baltimore. The first medium we'll discuss is Cora Hatch who came to Baltimore in December, 1856. She was born in Cuba, New York in 1840. At her birth, she was born with a call over her head. If you don't know what that is, she was born with the amniotic sac intact over her body, which is supposed to predict the child will have psychic abilities. Her family moved to a utopian community called Hopedale, also in New York. The Hopedale community espoused beliefs in temperance, nonviolence, and abolitionism. The parents left this community to start one of their own, and this is when Cora began showing promise as a trans medium. She began appearing publicly at the age of 15. She married four times, first marrying at age 16. Again, many spiritualists, especially early in the movement, had radical notions of women's rights and also black rights because they did not believe in the ownership of souls. Some would also reject traditional notions of marriage. This form of feminism was called the free love movement. Readers of the Baltimore Sun may have seen this article um, about Hatch's first divorce. And let me read a passage of this to you. The writer of this has been shown a list of about 40 trans-speaking me mediums of both sexes who have either separated from their husbands and wives or who are living in extreme unhappiness. One who has figured in the recent pre-love conventions is set down as having abandoned two husbands, both of whom are still living, and one woman treated husbands with a sister spiritualist. Obviously, this writer believed this is pretty shocking behavior. Another famous medium who visited Baltimore was Oxa W. Sprague. She visited Baltimore in 1859, and she was born in Vermont. At the age of 25, she was afflicted by a debilitating joint disease. The spirits began speaking through her, and they cured her, and she began touring as a medium. At her performances, she would speak under mesmeric influence and lecture on spiritualist principles, reassuring audiences that death was only a transition and not to be feared. She also painted while blindfolded, recited poetry, and sang, all while in trance communication with the spirits. She died of a recurrence of the disease at age 34. In this short time, she had earned enough money to support herself from her appearances and extensive writings. Her diary and papers are preserved at the Vermont Historical Society. And um, this is an image of her tombstone, which bears the inscription, I still live. So not everyone was convinced by the spirit mediums. In April, 1853, a man named Professor Anderson wrote the Baltimore Sun a series of three letters hoping to, and this is his words, save his fellow creatures from the fangs of a league of imposters. He took particular aim at the Fox sisters, calling them the witches of the 19th century, suggesting variously that the wrappings were produced with the help of electricity, ventriloquism, or the cracking of toe joints. 
According to Anderson, the mediums traveled in gangs of eight or 10 to different cities, investigating and recording recent deaths and upcoming marriages um, for prominent families because such information would prove useful in spiritualist circles. Anderson closed his third letter vowing, and these are his words, but there is one thing I will promise you, sirs, I will not desert my cause, but will fight to the death every rapper in the union. So remember, Professor Anderson, this will not be the first time we see him in this program. So these are some of the mediums who visited Baltimore during the early part of the spiritualist movement. Gradually, spiritualism lost some of its associations with the women's and abolitionist movements. The Civil War, however, actually increased public interest in spiritualism as people wanted to contact their loved ones they had lost in the war. So these early trans speakers acted as missionaries for the movement. Now some wish to establish spiritualist churches, spiritualist conferences, and spiritualist publications. Audiences wanted to see more elaborate and convincing manifestations of the spirits, and there was also more skepticism. So I'd like to talk about a few important figures in this later period, but first, I'd like to give you an idea of the popularity of this movement. By 1890, around 45,000 Americans identified themselves as belonging to a spiritualist denomination. The actual number of spiritualists would have been much larger, perhaps around 2 million. Also a scholar who used newspaper ads to analyze spiritualist activity in US cities, identified Baltimore as the second most active city for spiritualist meetings for the time period 1867 to 73. So the most famous medium who came to Baltimore during this time was Nettie Coburn, who came to Baltimore on December 12th, 1862. Like many mediums, she was born in upstate New York. At the age of 21, she began touring. Not long after this appearance in Baltimore, Coburn was drawn to Washington, D.C. She was performing in a seance where she met First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln. Mary Todd Lincoln suffered greatly after the death of her son, Willie, who died in February 1862. She invited Nettie to the White House in late December. Several other mediums also visited the White House. She attended spiritualist meetings and sometimes Abraham Lincoln attended with her. Mrs. Lincoln continued to consult mediums after the death of her husband. And um, this is a photograph of Mary Todd Lincoln by a spirit photographer. The ghostly figure in the picture is supposed to be Abraham Lincoln. In 1892, Nettie published a book with the intriguing title, Was Abraham Lincoln a Spiritualist? Lizzie Doten visited Baltimore in 1863. She was a trans speaker who rejected marriage and advocated for equal pay for equal work, and she would do so during her lectures as she toured. Though she was not from Baltimore, she had an interesting Baltimore connection. At the end of her appearance in Baltimore on January 11th, 1863, she fell into a trance and was visited by the spirit of Edgar Allan Poe. Poe dictated the poem, The Streets of Baltimore, to her. And that's the poem. For years, many people believed the poem was actually written by Poe. Poe was a busy ghost. He actually dictated poems to other mediums also. So in this later period, men also became more involved in the movement. There were a few prominent male mediums. The most famous of these were the Davenport brothers. Born in Buffalo, New York, they toured England during the Civil War, and then they later toured extensively in the United States. They were known for an elaborate manifestation known as the Spirit Cabinet, where the mediums would be tightly bound in a wooden cabinet with musical instruments placed in a compartment between them. Inside the darkened cabinet, spirits would play the musical instruments. 
the Davenports came to Baltimore in March 1864, and I found an account of this visit in a spiritualist newspaper called The Banner of Light. Um, and here's the article. The author of this article, Washington Danskin, was initially skeptical, but he came away believing in the manifestations. Washington Danskin was a merchant from Baltimore. He became a spirit medium and he was a frequent contributor to the Banner of Light. He also started a spiritualist newspaper in Baltimore called the Spiritual Telephone. And he also wrote a book, which we'll be talking about later. Danskin was involved in starting a church called the First Spiritualist Congregation, which was incorporated in 1865 and met at Saratoga Hall. Around the same time, a woman named Fanny O. Heiser founded another spiritualist church here in Baltimore, but I don't have much information about that church. Um, Danskin's church was quite active. They had weekly meetings, a Sunday lyceum for children, um, and outdoor camp meetings that attracted as many as 2,000 people. Um, his church existed until around 1909, but by then, Baltimore had other spiritualist churches. As a medium, Dan Skin was also visited by the spirit of Edgar Allan Poe. Poe dictated a poem to him called The Christian's Pit for the Damned, where Poe told him that hell did not exist. Danskin's infant son died in May 1861. This obituary described the passing as a spiritual birth and said the son passed from earth to the home of freedom. Spiritualists looked at death as a transition to a place they called Summerland. Spiritualist mourners would sometimes wear white to funerals to honor the transition of their loved one. A gravestone inscription sometimes reflected spiritualist language. So as I mentioned, the manifestations um, in this period became more elaborate. Manifestations included the ringing of bells, the sounds of musical instruments, and ghost-like materializations. There was also spirit writings, drawings, and photography. This caused some to question the authenticity of these manifestations. In some cities, Spiritualists were treated as outright frauds. In 1885, two Baltimore City policemen arrested three fortune tellers, one of whom claimed to be a medium. Just three years later, Margaret Fox appeared at the New York Academy of Music to reveal the wrappings of the Fox sisters were fake. However, she quickly retracted this confession, saying she had been paid to give it. This book was published shortly thereafter. Baltimore spiritualists continue to defend their religion. In 1895, two lecturers posted a placard declaring fraud, fraud, fraud on Raines Hall, the site of frequent spiritualist meetings. On the evening of May 28, 1895, the lecturers demonstrated a cabinet manifestation. A crowd of angry spiritualists disrupted the exhibition, some of them threatening to have the man, one of the men arrested as he had previously conducted seances for money. So I hope I've made it clear that Baltimore was, for some people, a town that welcomed mediums and spiritualists. This might explain why Baltimore had a hand in producing the best-known spirit talking board, the Ouija board. So why was it necessary to invent a talking board? Recall that mediums didn't go to divinity school to discover they had the knack of contacting spirits. They found out by just trying it. Spiritualist newspapers sometimes published instructions on how to form and, or, and run a circle or seance. Unless a medium just wanted answers to yes or no questions, there could be real logistical obstacles to overcome. So let's go back to Washington A. Danskin. He wrote a book called How and Why I Became a Spiritualist, first published in 1858. 
So this book was a spiritualist bestseller. Um, he published four editions of this book. In it, he talked about his own experiences in seance circles. And this is a quote from the book. Through the magnetism emanating from the medium, vibrations or tipping of the table were produced. And while one of us would repeat the alphabet slowly, the communicating spirit would move the table at the appropriate letters, which being recorded would be found to form words and sentences. Well, obviously this method could be very time consuming. An early tool used to facilitate spirit communication was called the planchette. This was invented in France in the 1850s and it began to be sold in the United States in the 1860s. So you probably recognize this as part of the Ouija board, but it worked a little differently. The small hole at the tip of the heart held a pencil and that would make it easier for the spirits to direct the medium's hand when writing. The talking board started off as a homemade invention. According to the Museum of Talking Boards website in 1886, someone in Northern Ohio invented an alphabet board that could be used with a planchette that would be, um, that would be used to point at individual letters. Someone wrote the New York Daily Tribune with instructions on how to make one. This article was shared in newspapers around the country. Manufacturers looked to cash in on the talking board craze. The W.S. Reed Toy Company in Massachusetts was the first to make a talking board to sell in 1886. There are other companies that made spirit boards as well, but we will now talk about the Ouija board because of its connection to Baltimore. So I'll give you the version of this story that makes the most sense to me, but understand there is controversy here. Charles Kennard owned a fertilizer business in Chestertown, Maryland, and he had an interest in the paranormal. His office was adjacent to the business of undertaker and furniture maker E.C. Reich. So he asked Reich to make a spirit board for him. Neighbors began showing interest in the board and the fertilizer business was not doing well. So Kennard moved to Baltimore to look for investors to sell the spirit board. Um, after Kennard moved to Baltimore, Reich no longer manufactured the boards. In 1890, Kennard met attorney Elijah Bond. Bond was interested in Kennard's talking board because his sister-in-law, Helen Peters, was a spirit medium. Peters and Kennard lived in the same boarding house, the Langham Hotel at 529 North Charles Street. One night at a seance, Peters named Kennard's talking board the Ouija. According to one story, the board told her what its name should have been. According to another story, she found the name Ouija on a locket she was wearing during the seance. So this is one of the few places associated with Baltimore spiritualism that's still in existence. It's now a 7-Eleven. And here's a plaque that you can see when you're in the store. So Bond made various improvements to the design and he patented it in 1891. According to Bond, he then incorporated a company called the Canard Novelty Company and gave $500 in financing. He had the trademark for his board issued to this company. Canard, however, left the company 14 months after it started. And one of the partners, Washington Bowie, continued running the business and renamed it the Ouija Novelty Company. In 1897, Bowie leased the rights to manufacture the board to William Fold and his brother Isaac. William Board Fold, I'm sorry, William Fold had joined the company at a young age, working his way up to a foreman and a stockholder. But by 1901, a feud had erupted between the brothers and things get complicated here. They established separate businesses still selling talking boards. Isaac's board was the same as William's Ouija board, but he renamed it the Oriole. And I'm sorry, this is the Ouija board from 1891. And this is the Oriole board. <laughs> um, 
William sued Isaac and the case was not settled until 1919 when William was given the right to continue to use the name Ouija for his board. So this lawsuit got much media coverage and everyone involved sent letters to the son pleading their own case. Kennard wrote saying he was the inventor and the son of E.C. Reich wrote saying the same thing. Reich by this time had passed away. So the spirits gave their own opinion in 1939 when a spiritualist using the board asked for the real identity of the inventor and the spirits said it was William Fold. But as we've seen, the idea of a talking board had already been widely publicized before Reich, Fold, or um, the Fold brothers or Bond had anything to do with the Ouija. Although some used the board as a toy or party diversion, some people still used it as a spiritualist tool. The board even produced a best-selling author. In 1913, and oops, I'm getting a little behind myself. In 1913, a St. Louis housewife named Pearl Curran tried using the board. She was contacted by a spirit named Patience Worth, a woman who purportedly lived in New England in the 1600s. Patience began dictating poems and novels to Mrs. Curran, and many found critical acclaim. Parapsychologists investigated the work, and they were not able to discredit her. Worst books and poems, however, helped the Ouija become a bestseller across the nation. Um, some critics attacked the use of the Ouija board, claiming it encouraged the use of black magic and threatened Christianity. And many used the Ouija as a source for advice. After all, it was called the mystifying oracle. During the early part of the 20th century, it was not unusual to read that women sought divorces based on the advice of their talking boards. Couples also used it as an opportunity to get close on a night out. So Fold himself did not believe in the power of the Ouija, but he did make a lot of money selling the board. In 1920, he built a new factory at 1508 Hartford Avenue, and that's another building that does still exist. Here it is. Um, he died on February 24th, 1927, after a fall from the roof of the building. He was overseeing the replacement of a flagpole, um, and he was buried in Greenmount Cemetery. Elijah Bond was also buried at Greenmount, and thanks to Robert Murch of the Talking Board Historical Society, he has a unique memorial marker. By the way, much of the information and images I presented are from his websites, the Talking Board Historical Society and WilliamFold.com. So now we're going to talk about the history of stage magic in Baltimore, but remember, we are still looking at this history through a spiritualist lens. So magic in Baltimore has a long history. The first record of a magician's performance in Baltimore was in 1787 when Signor Falcone came to town to perform at the Old Theater. So the first modern stage magician was Jean, and I will probably mispronounce this because I don't know French, Jean-Eugène Robet-Houdin um, from France. So you probably recognize the name in another form. Houdini named himself after Robet-Houdin. Robet Houdin began performing in 1845, right around the time the Fox sisters began demonstrations of their spirit wrappings. He dressed the way that many magicians dress today in a black tailcoat with a top hat. Um, as far as I know, he never traveled to Baltimore, but his Scottish rival did. So remember Professor Anderson and his criticism of the Fox sisters? In his final letter of April 7th, 1853, he closed. I trust that the public will not think that I seek notoriety or gain by this expose. I trust in God that I may be the humble instrument in saving many from lunacy or death. 
Well, things were not as they seemed with Professor Anderson. In doing background research for this program, I discovered his real identity. He was John Henry Anderson, also known as the Wizard of the North. Anderson was hardly an altruist in denouncing the Fox sisters. He was looking for publicity for his Grand Soiree Magique at the Holiday Street Theater. He promised awe-inspiring feats of necromancy meant to expose the fallacy of witchcraft, demonology, psychology, and the more modern-ism, spiritualism. So magicians made Baltimore a stop on their theatrical tours during the age of vaudeville from around the 1880s through the Depression. And we'll be discussing the three most prominent magicians of this era, Harry Keller, Howard Thurston, and Harry Houdini. None were from Baltimore, but all three made multiple appearances here and had connections with amateur magicians in Baltimore. Harry Keller, born as Heinrich Keller, was born in Erie, Pennsylvania in 1849. At the age of 10, he went to work in a pharmacy. One day, he blew a hole in the floor of the building because he was playing with chemicals. So like any sensible child might do, he ran away from home. He was taken in by a minister in upstate New York where he saw a magic show by the Fakir of Ava and he became his assistant. In 1869, he left that job to become an assistant to the Davenport brothers. As you may recall, the Davenports were spirit mediums whose trademarks were manifestations from a spirit cabinet. After four years, Keller left to perform magic with another Davenport assistant, William Fay, and you see his picture here. After an unfortunate shipwreck in 1875, Fay went back to the Davenports and Keller continued performing on his own. Once Keller left the Davenports, he no longer presented himself as a medium, but he definitely traded in ambiguity. Faye and Keller would stage seances as part of their act, and Keller became known for his tricks involving the spirit cabinet. In at least one case, Keller went back to the spiritualist to earn his bread. In 1879, he visited Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. to perform magic, but it did, he did not sell many tickets. So he advertised a spiritualist lecture where the spirits once again assisted him in his cabinet. Even Keller's posters give one the impression, without explicitly saying so, that dark forces might be assisting him in his magical acts. In the 1880s and 1890s, spiritualism was coming under increased scrutiny. When um, Philadelphia philanthropist um, Henry Siebert was a believer, and when Siebert died in 1883, he endowed a chair in philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania with the condition that a commission be appointed to investigate the truth of spiritualism. The university appointed a commission, including scientists, and, and set to inviting mediums to demonstrate their craft. One thing the commission investigated was spirit writing, which was done on little portable slates. Harry Keller appeared before the commission to demonstrate how the sleight of hand of a magician could be used to produce the same results. Spiritualists objected that members of the commission were biased against them. The commission nonetheless produced its report in 1887 saying, we beg to express our regret that thus far we have not been cheered by the discovery of a single novel fact. Keller made several appearances in Baltimore. Here's a program from our theater program collection from Ford's Theater in 1899. So during the latter part of the 19th century, magicians aspire to great magician status. Audiences seem to accept only one magician at a time as great. The previous great magician was Alexander Herman, a French magician known as Herman the Great. When he died in 1896, Keller took this role. 
By 1905, Keller was looking to retire and to designate a successor. Fellow magicians speculated this would be Paul Veladon, a German magician who had worked with Keller. After Keller's Baltimore appearance in 1907, Baltimore magic historian and amateur magician, Henry Ridgely Evans, wrote a British magic publication. If you ask me, I say Howard Thurston, by all means, I predicted upon Thurston, Keller's mantle will fall. As Keller's friend, Evans may have had some inside information. So Baltimore can definitely boast its part in magic history. On May 16, 1908, at a performance at Ford's Theater in Baltimore, Harry Keller passed his wand and cape to Howard Thurston. Baltimore magician Thomas Worthington wrote, in his adieu to the spectators, Professor Keller rested his arm affectionately on the shoulders of the younger man. Tears dimmed Keller's eyes as he walked off the stage. Keller did not lose the opportunity to persuade Baltimoreans that spiritualism was a fraud. In this last performance, he demonstrated how mediums caused tables to wrap, produce spirit writing on slates and other tricks. This article appeared in the sun the next day. So who was this new great magician, Howard Thurston? Like Keller, Thurston came from humble beginnings. He was born in 1869 in Columbus, Ohio. Howard also ran away from home shortly after seeing the show of Herman the Great. He began riding the rails as a hobo, worked as a newsboy on trains, and eventually earned enough money to buy magical equipment and a book, Hoffman's Popular Magic. In New York City, he joined a gang of pickpockets and he was caught by the police. And this was actually his first big break. William Round, secretary of the New York Prison Association, sentenced him to three weeks in jail. But Round also converted him to Christianity and helped him enroll in a Christian school. Not long after graduation, however, Thurston saw Herman the Great again and he trailed him on the train to secretly observe him and watch his performances. From there, Thurston began working as a magician. With his wife, he would travel by wagon to Western mining towns that were not accessible by train. He performed mostly at carnivals and dime museums and also traveled the East Coast. Thurston told the son many years later that he traveled twice to Baltimore to perform in carnivals during this time. In 1899, he traveled to New York City and began performing in vaudeville and then went to London in 1900 to perform at the Palace Theater, where Houdini had already performed. Like Houdini, he came away a star. Thurston resolved to make his show into a great elaborate spectacle like Herman's. He returned to the States, then traveled to Australia, China, and India. Though he arrived in Australia penniless, he left India with $50,000 he had earned from performing. And so here's the backstory of the pa passing of the mantle. Valadon did not have the money to pay Keller all at once, so Thurston became Keller's choice. They met over dinner in May 1907 when Thurston signed a contract to acquire Keller's magical equipment for $7,000. So as we've seen, Baltimore is a place friendly to spiritualists in the 19th century. From the late 19th and early decades of the 20th century, Baltimore was also friendly to magicians. Magic clubs were popping up in many US cities and several national and even international organizations of magicians were founded during this time. And here's one of those. So the second magic club founded in the United States was called the Society of the Sphinx founded by Baltimorean Henry Ridgely Evans in 1902. This club vanished after a few months after the Society of American Magicians was founded in New York City. And by the way, um, the Society of American Magicians is an organization that still exists. 
So the Demons Club of Baltimore was not founded until 1911, but I believe that Evans' founding of the Society of the Sphinx indicated that amateur magicians were already active in Baltimore, and clearly Evans had connections with the larger community of magicians. So we're going to talk for a moment about Henry Ridgely Evans. Evans was born in Baltimore in 1861. He was a prolific writer, writing at least 14 books on magic. Most of these were on the history of conjuring or stage magic. And what I find interesting is that Evans also had an interest in spiritualism and the occult. In 1898, he gave a talk about a collection of occult and magical literature before a library association in Washington, DC. But he also wrote two books, The Spirit World Unmasked and Hours with the Ghosts, in which he exposed spiritualist manifestations. So here's Evans' uh, recreation of a spirit photograph. Um, this table of contents from Hours with the Ghost shows um, how extensive this discussion was. He discussed in detail Keller's testimony before the Siebert Commission. But interestingly, Evans also said that some manifestations may have been effective because of the audience's suggestibility and the medium's telepathic abilities rather than the medium's use of conjuring. So his books may have had a bigger influence than you might initially believe. The Spirit World Unmasked was offered in the Sears catalog, right alongside books on astrology and hypnotism. As I mentioned, other magicians sometimes revealed how mediums pr produced their manifestations. But these revelations could have been problematic for magicians because some spiritualists were using the same tricks as the conjurers themselves. Magic clubs and associations encouraged magicians to not reveal the secrets behind their tricks. When Henry Ridgely Evans founded the Society of the Sphinx in 1902, he asked members to pledge not to expose even the simplest trick or illusion on the public stage. Of course, these clubs also served a social function. So magician Arthur D. Gans founded an association called the Society of Baltimore Magicians on February 22, 1911. And this club was renamed the Demons Club of Baltimore Magicians on December 7th of the same year. I'm not sure of the reason for the name change, but the new name definitely captured the flavor of the magic of that era. Arthur Gans worked as a reporter. This is a close-up of that photograph. This is a photograph we have in our collection at the Pratt Library, by the way. Um, so Arthur Gans worked as a reporter for the Baltimore American, and he once operated three movie theaters in Baltimore. And in 1920, he began working for the B&O Railroad as an exhibitor of safety pictures and worked there until his retirement in 1960. Some called Gans the safety first magician because of this. Um, like many of the other demons, he corresponded with other magicians, some of them famous, and his papers are preserved at the Maryland Center for History and Culture. That's the new name for the Maryland Historical Society. He died in 1963 at the age of 73, and his obituary in the Sun said he was a member of the Sons of the American Revolution, the Society of the War of 1812, and the International Brotherhood of Magicians, a very interesting combination of organizations. So I've tried to find out what kind of magic Gans performed. The only trick I've learned about were his renowned billiard ball routine and another trick called the Kaiser Decapitated. And we'll come back to this first trick a little bit later. Another founding member of the Demons was Thomas Chu Worthington III. He was born in 1879, and his father was a physician at Johns Hopkins University. Worthington graduated from the Maryland Institute and became a salesman for the John T. Willis Company, a distributor of x-ray and photographic equipment. 
Worthington was introduced to magic by his grandfather. At the age of seven, he saw Herman the Great perform in Baltimore. He was the magician who witnessed the passing of the mantle at Ford's in 1908, and Worthington met Thurston the following season. So what kind of magic did Worthington perform? According to his obituary, he could escape within seconds from any locked trunk. He also sometimes performed in costume as a hobo or as Santa Claus. He developed relationships with famous magicians and was able to acquire items from Alexander Herman, Harry Keller, Howard Thurston, and others. He even had Keller's spirit cabinet and Robet Houdin's wand. Worthington wanted to build a temple of magic in Baltimore to house this collection, but this did not come to pass. Upon his death in 1953, the collection, valued at $100,000, was donated to the Ringley Museum in Sarasota, Florida. This collection eventually passed into the hands of private collectors. Um, Worthington also had other interests. He collected natural history specimens, which he donated to Loyola University, and he also collected photographs. And this is how I first became acquainted with Mr. Worthington, as I was indexing items for our photograph collection. This is a picture of the aftermath of the uh, Great Fire of 1904. Um, so we have a lot of photographs donated by him. Also, the Maryland Center for History and Culture has a collection of his photographs also. So you might think Worthington had a large house to accommodate these collections. At the time of his death, he was living at 2113 Poplar Grove Street in West Baltimore. This is a pretty humble little home. I took the time to verify that this really was his house through property records. Um, his wife sold this house not long after his death. But Worthington was not entirely a humble guy, however. He did not like the idea of any magic organization that presented, that permitted non-magicians to join. According to the Magic of Baltimore website, Worthington began referring to non-magicians and the Demons Club as the peeping toms of magic. In 1923, Worthington, along with demons Louis E. Schilling and Charles Ziegler, began the Society of Osiris, a magician's-only club. He published a newsletter called The Osirian. In his first issue, he stated, Mr. Worthington is a firm believer in but one man and a man belonging to but, but one magic club, undoubtedly meant as a dig at the demons. Another founding member of the Demons Club was Charles Fulton Orsler. He was born in Baltimore in 1893, and at the age of 13, he began working as a reporter for the Baltimore American newspaper. So I found his autograph on our image of the demons from 1915, when Orsler was a young man in his 20s. And here's a close-up if you want to take a look at these people in this picture. I'm going to try to see if I can get this little pen to work. Um, I'm going to circle a few people. So this was Howard Thurston. And this is Thomas Worthington, forgive my circle. And then this was, um, this is Fulton Orsler right here. So those are the three people that I've been able to identify so far in this photograph. Um, so by 1920, Orsler had moved to New York City and he remained an amateur magician that became better known as an editor, as a playwright and as an author of detective novels. Um, and he was the only member of the demons that I could find who published books exposing the methods of spiritualists and we'll be coming back to him later. So let's go back to the demons club. Um, what made them so remarkable? They were the second oldest magic club in the world. Their slate of officers all had demonic titles. 
1914, Harry Keller was Archdemon Supreme. Howard Thurston was Honorary Archdemon Supreme. Thomas C. Worthington was the Archdemon. Fulton Orsler was the Vice Archdemon. And then there was a member who also served as Demon Scribe and Treasury Imp. Keller and Thurston's positions, of course, were honorary. But as we've already seen, members of the Demons Club had close personal relationships with Keller and Thurston, and they also um, would be guests of honor at annual Demons Club dinners. The Demons Club was also the only magic club with its own clubhouse, and this was in West Baltimore at Belvedere and Groveland Avenues. Um, and here's another picture. I don't think this building exists anymore. I've been trying to find out its location. The building had its own stage made from the wood from the stage at Ford's Theater where Keller passed the wand to Thurston. Um, and this clubhouse was open to the public only a few times a year. Several famous magicians performed on the Steeman stage, including Harry Blackstone Sr., Howard Thurston, Harry Houdini, Dante, Dante was the um, successor of Thurston, and Henry Ridgely Evans, the magic historian. There are many photographs of the Demons Club annual dinners with Howard Thurston, and these dinners sounded like great fun for everyone involved. The first dinner given in Thurston's honor was in March 1914. The Sun reported that rabbits leaped from the pockets of unsuspecting waiters, ducks came quacking from the folds of their jackets, and real eggs rolled from their cars. This was the start of a tradition that lasted many years. Um, and again, this is um, the 1915, this would have been the second annual Demons Club dinner. So here's an invitation from the Demons Club dinner in 1918. As you see, this is a clubhouse and actually the door opens up. This invitation was designed and made by Thomas Worthington. And here's another image of the Demons Club annual dinner. And this is from the Magic of Baltimore website from around 1920 to 23. Um, you can see Thurston sitting on the far right in the front row. If you look carefully, you can see that some of the members are wearing skull caps with horns. In 1923, Arthur Gans used his connections with the B&O Railroad for an unusual celebration. A new dining car, the Martha Washington, was sidetracked at Mount Royal Station and used for uh, the banquet. When Thurston arrived, he was presented with a ticket for Kelthurma, a name which combined Keller, Thurston, and Magic. This is an image of Gans performing his famous billiard ball routine on his car um, from the Society of American Magicians website. And then here's a picture of the demons outside the car, and they're waiting in line. And you can see, if you look carefully, that some of them have the little skull caps also with the horns. And this is actually from Mike Rose's book. So the early decades of the 20th century brought a world war and a global pandemic, and people became even more interested in communicating with the dead. At the same time Keller, Thurston, and Houdini grew in prominence, Baltimore's theaters continued to host a few spirit mediums. Medium Anna Eva Fay came to Baltimore's Auditorium Theater in 1916. Actually, she had appeared in Baltimore as early as 1887. She was a medium and mentalist who used magic tricks to convince her audience of her psychic powers. In fact, she applied for membership to a British magician's club, the Magic Circle, and was accepted for membership in 1913 as the first honorary lady associate, perhaps as a nod to her powers as a conjurer. Like female mediums before her, Faye used her prominence to promote women's rights. This is an article from 1915 when she came to Baltimore to perform at the Hippodrome Theater. And then finally, here's a photograph of her, and that's she's standing there with Houdini. 
So the arch enemy of the spiritualists also came to visit in 1916, and that was Harry Houdini. Of course, most of you have heard of him, but some of you may not know much about his life. So his birth name was Eric or Erich Weitz, and he was born March 24th, 1874 in Hungary. The Weitz family moved to New York City in 1886, um, where his father started a Jewish religious school. Erich and his brothers also worked to support the family. He made a friend at a job at a necktie factory, and this friend was interested in magic. Erich read the memoirs of Robet Houdin, and he renamed himself Harry Houdini in his honor. At the age of 17, they left the factory to work as magicians. Um, and this friend quit after only a few weeks, um, and Houdini's brother, Theo, became his partner. At this time, they were called the brothers Houdini. Eventually, Theo and Harry would perform separately, and Theo would become known as Hardin. Um, Houdini became, began performing at dime museums in Manhattan, where he met and married his wife, Bess. His trademark trick involved escaping from a lockbox with Bess sitting outside the box, and then once he escaped, Bess would be found inside. In 1897, he joined a Midwest traveling medicine show. The proprietor, Dr. Hill, would sell his snake oil during the day, and the troupe would perform at night at the local opera house. Dr. Hill asked Houdini to add a Sunday seance to the show. Houdini used some of his escape skills and the magic show that he used in his magic shows to create manifestations for the seance, but he also learned some other tricks of the medium trade. Before his seances, he would visit cemeteries to gather names, read old newspaper files, and gather gossip about prominent families. His career really took off in 1899 when he began performing on the vaudeville circuit. In vaudeville, he only performed his escape tricks. In 1900, he traveled to London and then toured Europe several times during the first decade of the 20th century. During this time, he perfected many kinds of escapes, such as from locked trunks, from handcuffs, and even from a locked milk can filled with water. So in these early days of his career, he did these escapes behind closed curtains. His brother, Hardeen, was challenged to do a straitjacket escape in Wales in 1904, and he decided to do it in full sight, which he believed added to the dramatic effect. Houdini also began performing many of his escapes in full sight. In 1913, Houdini's mother died, and this was a death he took hard. He returned to the States and began an all-magic tour, which was panned. He went back to escape routines to attract an audience for his shows. He began performing the straitjacket escapes suspended in midair out in the open, and this drew huge crowds. Houdini performed this stunt in Baltimore on April 26, 1916. He chose to do this in front of the Sun Building at the corner of Charles and Baltimore Streets. This got plenty of press coverage and not just in the Sun Papers. Here's an article announcing the upcoming feat and the Baltimore Deutsche Correspondent. And the headline is Houdini must hangen, which means Houdini must hang. Um, and this Sun article has virtually the same headline, Houdini swings today. In front of a crowd of 50,000 people, um, Houdini was restrained in a straitjacket by two Baltimore City police officers. The jacket was one used by the police department and the officers were experienced in his use. At 12.22, he was hoisted aloft, 50 feet over the Charles Street crowd. Just three and a half minutes later, he had escaped. So um, Telling this story doesn't really capture what a feat this was. So I'm gonna to try to show you a um, video of Houdini um, escaping. And that's, let's work on getting that up. 
All right, let's see. How do I do that? Oh, no. Do you have the tab open, Julie? I might not. Something we have. I have. Oh, man, it's not a tab anymore. I have. Okay. Um, now I think I probably can do it. Can I go back to screen share? Yep. If you click share screen again. Okay. I think I have it. Okay. So now I'm about to click on it. And we're going to hit cancel. Did it work? Yes. Now, if you just um, full screen it. Yeah. Let's, this is going to take a second. Sorry about this. Okay, why is this? Okay, let's go back to the beginning. I apologize. Not sure if you can still hear me, but this is not Baltimore. This is another city. This man here that's standing next to Houdini, that's actually Harry Potter. And I'm going to go ahead and, okay. Let's see if I can get back to my slideshow now. Oh no. Do I have to go to a new share? Oh no. What happened here? Yeah, Julie, if you stop sharing, if you click stop share and then yep and then pull your powerpoint back up to share that you'll be good to go okay um can you see it or no not yet oh. is it minimized it will be in a minute um i don't know it's frozen again we had this issue earlier why are we freezing it's just too much exciting information for PowerPoint. Oh gosh, geez. Um, yeah. Are you able to um, close it and reopen it again? If I do that, it's gonna cover up our 
presentation. Let me see here, Lauren. Um, let me do this. Let me, uh oh, did I just X myself out of? <laughs> oh my God, I'm so You're still sorry. here. I'm still, still in Zoom. You're still good. I'm still there, but like now I have to figure out a way to reopen the whole thing. Oh my gosh, this is terrible. I am sorry. This is awful. No, it's okay, Julie. You're doing good. It is just not okay. It's being slow and loading. Yeah, this is why we have so many memes on the internet now about virtual work. Oh, so don't worry. Okay, we are. Okay, I think I, I am where I need to be if we can just. Um... Okay. So I'm going to hit share screen. Cancel. And I think we have it back, right? Yes, we are back. All right. So, all right. Now we're going to go a bit more chronologically. Um, this performance took place before Houdini really became concerned with spiritualism. At this point in his career, he was mostly performing on the vaudeville circuit, and magician routines in vaudeville tended to be somewhat short and were part of an overall slate of performers. Before the mid-20s, the magician who was doing a full evening of magic in the tradition of Keller was Howard Thurston. Of course, Thurston visited Baltimore multiple times. To give you a flavor of his show, here's a program from Ford's Theater when he came in 1922. In this performance, he used magical means to answer the question, do spirits return? Thurston never made any representation that the spirits were helping him, but his marvels had a spiritualistic flair. He made spirit paintings on a blank canvas, caused a phantom piano to play, and endowed an, an automaton vampire with life. The levitation of the Princess Karnak was his most famous trick. Um, this was a trick he acquired from Harry Keller when Keller passed the mantle to him. Levitation was a trick done by many past magicians using various methods, but during this era, levitation definitely had spiritualist associations. In seances, tables would mysteriously rise. One famous 19th century British medium, it was reported, would levitate himself across the seance room and out the window. The sun declared the levitation of the Princess Karnak the most beautiful and inexplicable of Thurston's features. Thurston said, his object is to mystify and entertain, and he wouldn't deceive you for the world. Eventually, however, Houdini would accuse him of being a spiritualist, perhaps because Thurston actually allowed for the possibility of communicating with spirits while exposing fraud where he saw it. Thurston would never match Houdini's zeal in attacking spirit mediums. Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, was a believer and toured the United States to lecture on spiritualism in 1923. While in England, Houdini befriended Doyle and began visiting seances with him. Lady Doyle inv invited him to a seance in which Houdini's mother was contacted, but Houdini remained skeptical. Scientists wanted to investigate the validity of the messages from beyond. The Scientific American magazine announced a $5,000 reward for an authentic spiritualist manifestation, and Doyle offered an additional $5,000 against the skepticism of Harry Houdini. Um, this is a photograph of that committee, and the woman standing in the middle, by the way, was a spirit medium, a famous one named Mina Crandon. 
Uh, mediums would be investigated under controlled conditions observed by these scientists and by Houdini himself. So these are mediums who could materialize flowers and live birds, play instruments, and exude a mysterious substance called ectoplasm from every orifice of their body. Most of these mediums were women, and they submitted to invasive searches. By the way, this is ectoplasm on this woman's face. This is Mina Crandon. Houdini constructed a box to restrain the mediums. Um, several mediums agreed to the test, but none were deemed worthy of the prize. In 1924, Houdini published his book, A Magician Among the Spirits, which ended his friendship with Doyle. Houdini, however, continued his crusade. He began lecturing against spiritualism across the United States. The next season, 1925, Houdini developed his first full evening magic show in the tradition of Herman and Keller. This was comprised of three acts, magic, magic feats of escape and exposures of spiritualism. In November 1925, Houdini came back to Baltimore. The Baltimore News ran stories about this appearance all week with some very aggressive headlines. Houdini on trail of Baltimore Sears, Houdini to expose Baltimore frauds, and Houdini on warpath against Sears. A few months later, Houdini appeared before the United States House of Representatives testifying for the ban of fortune telling in Washington, DC. Despite the national publicity, the bill did not pass. As you might imagine, Houdini was not making friends with the spiritualists. Houdini went even further with these attacks. He brought with him a group of mostly female undercover investigators while on tour to visit local mediums. He had a few magicians who also assisted him in exposing fraudulent mediums. One of them, Samri Frakel, had published books debunking spiritualism. Samri Frakel was not the person that he seemed to be. This book was actually written by former Demons Club member, Fulton Orsler. In November, 1926, Orsler received a letter from S. Malcolm Byrd of the Psychical Research Society. Byrd quoted spirit medium, Alice Wood, who reported, the waters are black for Houdini and Houdini's days as a magician are over. In mid-October, Houdini visited McGill University in Montreal to speak about spiritualism. A student visited him backstage, asking if it was true he could withstand any blow to the abdomen. His, the student punched Houdini before he could tense his muscles. Houdini continued to Detroit for his next run, where he collapsed after his first performance, and he died of a ruptured appendix on October 31st, 1926. Some conspiracy theorists claimed the spiritualists had something to do with his death. Whether this was true is debatable, but Houdini feared the spiritualist enough that he began carrying a gun and he actually advised Orsler to do the same. Houdini reportedly had a compact with his wife and friends that he would try to communicate with the other side after his death. The last official Houdini seance was held 10 years after his passing without a word from the spirit of Houdini. Houdini's death marked the beginning of the end of an era in magic. Vaudeville was waning, partly because of the popularity of motion pictures, and the Great Depression struck a serious blow to live entertainment. Still, Howard Thurston continued to perform, making appearances in Baltimore. On May 16, 1933, he was honored at a special dinner house hosted by the Society of Osiris Magicians at the Lord Baltimore Hotel to recognize the 25th anniversary of the passing of the wand. Among the guests were the mayor of Baltimore, Thomas Worthington, and Henry Ridgely Evans. 
Thurston was presented a wand made from the wood from Ford's theater, which when held to the light, casts perfect silhouettes of Keller and Thurston. This wand became a sacred artifact passed from magician to magician to this day. Thurston made his last appearance in Baltimore in October 1934, when he suffered a minor heart attack at the Century Theater. Um, Thomas Worthington visited him backstage. Thurston said, Tom, you're the only one in this world who really cares for me and the only one who will care a damn when I am gone. Thurston died of a stroke on April 13, 1936, at the age of 66. Thurston and Worthington, in fact, had developed a close relationship over the years. Worthington um, and Thurston had corresponded extensively and Worthington preserved all of these letters. Um, Worthington also published a little book of his memories of his friendship with Thurston. He also honored his friend by commissioning a bronze emblem inscribed to Thurston from the Society of Osiris, which is still on Thurston's grave in Ohio. And um, I'd like to acknowledge that I was uh, fortunate to meet magician and collector Rory Feldman, who collects Thurston memorabilia. And he's a person with that correspondence and many items related to the Demons Club and Society of Osiris. Um, so many of the images that you're seeing here are part of this collection. So perhaps because of Houdini, spiritualism began to lose its grip on the public imagination. Um, although some spiritualist churches remain active to this day, Sp stage magic no longer emphasized spiritualist themes, but magic in Baltimore continued to flourish. In 1938, the Demons Club became the Keller Thurston Assembly Number no. 6 of the Society of American Magicians. The group started by Worthington, the Society of Osiris, is not active but still has four living members. The Society of Osiris also sponsored two magic clubs for young magicians, the, the Disciples of Osiris and the Pyramid Club for the youngest members. These clubs nurtured a future generation of young magicians, including Phil Thomas, who went on to start the Yogi Magic Mart in Baltimore, and Melbourne Christopher, who arguably became Baltimore's most famous magician. Christopher also was a magic historian and author of many books, some of which I used to do research for this program. Baltimore still has a magic scene to this day, which I hope you'll be inspired to explore and support. And this is really a great site to check out if you want to know more. So let's go back to my earlier question. Why do magicians want to discredit spiritualists? Houdini justified his crusade by pointing out that some people spent large sums of money to speak to the dead. A few people committed suicide in, hope, in hopes of joining their loved ones in Summerland. Some speculated, have speculated that mediums and magicians were competing for the same audiences. But as I've shown, some magicians actually worked as mediums themselves at times. So I've asked a different question. Why were magicians of that era interested in spiritualism? So as part of my research, I interviewed local magician Vince Wilson. He runs Poe's Magic Theater. So that was the question that I asked him. Vince gave me an answer that I didn't expect. He told me that the point of using elements of spiritualism, horror, and occult and magic actually helped it become a more powerful experience. It's a way of inviting your audience to feel wonder and to believe in magic. In the years after the Depression, many magicians did not emphasize spiritualism or the occult in their acts. But now there are some magicians who practice a genre of magic called bizarre magic, which focuses on storytelling and sometimes uses imagery of the supernatural and of horror. So there's a famous quote by the magician Robet Houdin, and it goes like this. A magician is an actor playing the part of a magician. 
Magicians use sleight of hand and misdirection to make the impossible possible to bend our perceptions. Aside from duping the grieving, why might mediums have used these same skills? One medium, Annie Benninghofen, admitted to Houdini, and this is a quote from her, I really believed in spiritualism all the time I was practicing it, but I thought I was justified in helping the spirits out. They couldn't float a trumpet around the room. I did it for them. They couldn't speak, so I spoke for them. I thought I was justified in trickery because through trickery, I could get more converts to what I thought was a good and beautiful religion. So I'll leave you with this thought. Were mediums, magicians, and those who use talking boards tapping into the same thing, a very human desire to feel awe and wonder and to confront death, the great unknown. So uh, before I end, I also wanted to spend time uh, giving thanks to a few people who helped me, spirit medium Ivy Tominak and magicians Vince Wilson, Mike Rose, and Rory Feldman. And um, also here's a slide with my contact information in case you have questions or would like to email me. I do have a list of the resources that I used in this program. If you would like that, you can um, email me and ask for that. And that's all I have. <laughs> that was great. Thank you, Julie. Um, we had a lot of great comments in the Zoom chat. Um, and I think a couple questions um, and on Facebook as well. Um, and Mike, I don't wanna um, step in if you have something to say before the Q&A as well. Oh, well, uh, first I just wanna say, Julie, that was a great presentation. Um, <laughs> I, I learned plenty and enjoyed it very much. And I'm happy to feel any questions from anybody who has anything pertaining to magicians, since that's my specialty, not so much the spiritualists, but um, I'm happy to take a shot at any questions anybody has. Yeah, and I can read out um, our first question. Um, one of our attendees in Zoom asked, any idea what's on the menu for a dinner a la Hoover at the Demons Club? You know, I've never seen the menu, so <laughs> I, no. I don't know if it was uh, if they purposely made the menu to have a demon theme to it or not. I'd, I'd have to see one to find out. But if so, I'm sure it was very tongue in cheek. Yeah, I don't know. I've never seen anything like that either. So I, I don't know. <laughs> Um, and then another question um, came through. Um, they asked, wasn't there a magician, magician's club or theater in Mount Vernon a long time ago? Hmm. I wonder if that was, could that have been Dantini? Like you performed at the Peabody Bookstuba or something like that? Does that sound familiar to you, Mike? Well, yeah, Dantini did perform at Peabody, but um, we'd have to find out what long time ago was. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right. I don't know if that was, you know, five years ago or 25 years ago, so. But I, I don't recall a specific magic theater a long time ago. Uh, there's one on South Charles Street called Illusions that is on hiatus, but still here. I don't know if they could mean that. Yeah, um, and they did say, um, yes, that was it for Dantini. Wow, <laughs> I guessed right. Score <laughs> them for Julie. 
All right. <laughs> Um, and a couple more questions coming in on Zoom and just reminding our friends on Facebook that any questions you have, post them in the comments. I'm checking both. Um, so the next question we have is, uh, ooh, what's the best way to get my son who is eight into magic? Ooh, I, I'll take a quick stab at this one. Um, there are magic organizations, as uh, Julie mentioned, there's the Society of American Magicians, and they have a young program for, uh, for, for kids. Uh, there's the International Brotherhood of Magicians, and the, these uh, national organizations have local chapters, and the Society of American Magicians local chapter is called an assembly, and for the International Brotherhood of Magicians, it's called a ring. And uh, I'm the president of uh, the Baltimore Ring 179, and I'd be happy to help any uh, youngsters uh, with some resources to, to learn magic. And there, there's an old saying that um, if you ask a magician how he did a trick, he, he won't tell you. But if he, you ask him where to learn to do the tricks, he will help you. Because yeah, otherwise, there'd be no more magicians. So I'm, I'm happy to help. Yeah, that's great. Um, this next question we have is, where would Thurston's wand be now? Well, I'm sure Rory Feldman has some wands that Thurston used. By the way, I, I know Rory, who you mentioned, Julie, who helped you so much yeah. with the Thurston information. Right. And Rory is an amazing collector and historian on Thurston. But if you're specifically asking about the wand that was made from the floorboards of the Thor Ford's Theater, it's the one where you hold it up to a light and it casts a shadow of Keller and Thurston. Mm -hmm. Right. I believe there were actually two of those made. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but uh, I believe- I heard that one, also. Yeah. There was two. And I believe the one now that I'm aware of is in the collection of a, a collector, Mike Caveney, who has the Egyptian Hall Museum. So I believe he has that one. And, and uh, I saw it about 20 years ago at a magic history convention oh, in, in wow. Baltimore. So uh, it- it does exist and it's being taken care of. <laughs> That's really cool to know that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see Vince Wilson is saying that Lance Burton has one of them. That's oh, that's very possible. I mean, he okay. would be a good guy to have one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nice. And before we go to the next question, um, I want to remind people that a few moments ago, I posted the library survey. So we'd really appreciate it if you fill that out. It's about six questions. It's on Zoom and Facebook. And so before we close the Zoom webinar, if you just click the link, um, then it will open the survey in another window and it won't kick you out of Zoom. So you can have that open and wait until we're done to fill it out. Um, so thank you in advance. Um, so the next audience question we have is, are there practicing spiritualists in Baltimore? Ooh, I do not know. And I have tried to find out and I, I just have not been able to figure that out. Um, I will say this, that if you go to the, um, I guess it's called, it's called the NSAC. I think it's National Spiritualists. Um, 
the National Spiritualist Association of Churches. That's what it stands for. If you go to their either their website or even their Facebook page, um, they have certain events that um, anybody can join via Zoom. If you want to observe, you know their you know their circles and what mediums do today, it's a it's a little different than what is described in my program because that's 19th century spiritualism. So maybe you want to check that out as as a way to get started if you think that sounds interesting. I think I see a comment here from David Parr. Um, what does it say? Yeah, David says many spiritualist churches rebranded themselves as spiritual churches, which continue today. Okay. Huh. Um, and Mike, we got a question for you. Um, I just lost it. Um, as a magician, what do you think about people like Teresa Caputo who make a living speaking with the dead? Well, I, I tend to think that each of these things have to be addressed individually. You know, there's some magicians that say, oh, all spiritualists are fake and all mediums are fake. And I think the key to keep in mind is that um, when you hear about magicians debunking, they usually say they're debunking fraudulent spiritualists and fraudulent mediums. Um, I'm one of those people, obviously, as a magician, I know that things can be tricked and can be rigged and uh, can be done that way. But I'm not against saying that it's it's possible. Uh, but uh, I'm one of those people that needs to experience it to, to know it's true. I don't judge somebody who believes one way or the other. Um, I wouldn't judge somebody who makes a living doing that uh, unless they were somehow specifically tricking people uh, to take advantage of their beliefs. Um, so that's probably the only place I would draw a line. If you're taking advantage of someone's beliefs to make money, that's not right. But if you're actually embracing their beliefs and you believe in it as well, then I think you have know, more power to you. Thank you. Um, and we have um, a question about the presentation from someone who, I understand this, had to go see to the tea kettle. Uh, um, they ask, is it suspected that the guy who sucker punched Houdini was connected to spiritualists? That's one of the conspiracy theories that are out there, uh, that he may have been um, actively involved or used as a pawn and asked to do it by others. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, there's no concrete evidence, but it's definitely part of the conspiracies that are out here. I believe that was... Uh, was it Whitehead? Was that the person's name? Yeah, that was something, yeah. Jay Gordon Whitehead, something yeah, like yeah. that. He was yeah. a student and I believe he was even, he may even have been a boxer um, and he just uh, may or may not have been involved in trying to hurt Houdini, um, but it's not clear. That's just one of those conspiracies. Yeah, I, I, I've even heard that it may not even be true that he actually caused a death, that maybe Houdini already had appendicitis and, you know, and like being punched caused pain that masked the pain of the appendix bursting, but I don't know. Yeah, I'm just checking Facebook again. Um, also, lots of people saying hello um, and thank you for the presentation, which is always nice to hear since we can't see you all. Um, we're not in a room together, but we're glad to be gathered virtually. 
Yeah, so I, I think those are all the questions we have for tonight. Um, see one more comment here about um, spiritualism in Baltimore and Vince Wilson sent this in saying that there's a spiritist society of Baltimore um, and he says he knows nothing about it other than they are modern spiritualists. Well, if it's specifically spiritist, spiritism is a little bit different than um, the type of spiritualism I was discussing this evening. That was started by, I think maybe it was a Frenchman named Kardec. He, the spirits gave him that name, Kardec. And, um, and he, it, it's just a little, it's like a church started by him. It's a, it's a bit different than modern, the, the kind of spiritualism that we were talking about this evening. Oh yeah, and Vince, Vince says that is correct. Yeah. Um, so I'll just check Facebook one more time because there is a little bit of a delay on Facebook from Zoom. Yeah, so thank you, Julie, so much. Like everyone's saying for your incredibly well-researched presentation. Thank you, Mike, for being here. And I mean, also contributing to the research and contributing your expertise. It was thank fun. You. Yes, thank you so much, Mike. Yeah. And um, thank you all for joining tonight. And thank you to the Hearing and Speech Agency for signing. Um, and because I did see another question um, from some people who weren't able to join for the entire time, I am posting, and so I'm typing at the same time, um, I am posting the link in Zoom to the Facebook Live. And so you don't need to have a Facebook account to watch our Facebook live videos. So you can click that link and go ahead. And once the Zoom room is closed, you'll be able to watch the program from the beginning. Yeah. So thank you everyone again for joining on this, us this evening. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Alyssa. Take care and stay safe. Thank you. Have a good night. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.